Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 5 through 42. Listen now for God's word to us. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I, I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or, or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will pro proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that, that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? The woman left her jar, her water jar, and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, my food 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say, four, more, four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see, the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite things about reading from John's Gospel, aside from the fact that it's just so different and sometimes even weird, is precisely stories like this. John lets us see these long, drawn-out scenes with extended dialogue and movement from one place to another. We see multiple characters all interacting with each other in, in different ways. There's, there's a texture and a depth to the narratives in John that, that we don't often get in the other Gospels. So like in Mark, for instance, everything happens immediately. After almost everything Mark says, it's and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. It moves so quickly. The beloved stories that most of us know about from Jesus' life are much shorter in Mark because there's this odd sense of urgency in the way that he tells stories. But not so with John. John tells these long, drawn-out narratives, and they're, they're incredibly fascinating. But along with that depth and that complexity comes a great challenge for the reader, and admittedly for the preacher, because with long narratives like this one, it's difficult to do justice to the whole story because there's just so much going on here. There are so many powerful moments, so, so much important context that could be explored. So get comfortable. We're gonna, this will be the one Sunday of the year where we have a two-hour worship service. Okay? So we can adequately go through every single piece of this text. Don't worry, we're not doing that. But it's just such an amazing story with so much richness that even if we can't touch on everything that happens, just to hear it read in its entirety I think is powerful. One of the things that sticks out uh, the most to me about this text is the sharp contrast between this story and the one we read last week about Nicodemus. You, you may remember that Nicodemus was this well-respected, intelligent, faithful Jewish man from, you know, from the Pharisees, and the, their entire conversation, brilliant though he was, he just never seemed to get it. He and Jesus were kind of talking past each other the entire time. And then immediately after that story, that story about Nicodemus, comes this woman, this Samaritan woman, who is different from Nicodemus in almost every single way, who is an outsider in almost every single way. She's a Samaritan, first of all. And Jews and Samaritans don't exactly get along very well. There is a very long, well-documented history of animosity between Jews and Samaritans. 
This is why she's so surprised by his question to her in verse 8. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And in that question, she also points out the second major difference between them, the, the difference that should prevent this interaction in the first place, that she is a woman. Because during these times, it would have been strongly against social custom for a man to be engaged with a, with a woman in conversation in this way. Indeed, even the disciples are shocked, astonished, when they return to find him speaking with a woman. And, to make matters even more complicated, she has uh, a bit of a history, we'll say. A history that Jesus is aware of. He knows that she has had five husbands, and that the man she's currently living with is not her husband. Now, we're not given any details about her previous marriages or her current situation. Uh, and interestingly, I mean, I think we often uh, jump to the conclusion and immediately assume the worst about her, that, you know, she's got this checkered past and has a bit of a history of getting around a little bit. Yet Jesus makes no such judgment about her. There, there are no words of condemnation about her life, about where she is in her life. But perhaps the most startling difference between her and Nicodemus, is that unlike Nicodemus, she seems to get it. She seems to understand. So when Jesus begins speaking metaphorically about living water, she seems to understand what he means, at least eventually, and she craves it almost immediately. Once she understands what he's talking about, she craves it. She recognizes him as the Messiah and immediately becomes a witness sharing her testimony with anyone and everyone who will listen. And many come to believe because of her. Now Nicodemus, you may remember, was not quite as enthusiastic as she. He never really seemed to understand what Jesus was saying. And their encounter ended in a much more ambivalent tone. And then later when he reappears throughout the gospel, it's never really clear if he came around, if he finally understood who Jesus was and what Jesus was saying. It's, it's much more ambiguous. So this woman, who's never even given a name, who's different from Jesus in almost every way, and is clearly different from Nicodemus in every way, she's the one who gets it. Not the Pharisee, not the wise teacher of Israel, not, not the well-learned scholar, this unnamed Samaritan woman whose marital history and current living situation may suggest that she has not been the most faithful of people in the past. She's the one who gets it and becomes the most powerful witness to Jesus while he's still alive that we read about, perhaps in the entire New Testament. In fact, in John's Gospel, she's really the first one besides John the Baptist to fully recognize who Jesus is. And, and then she becomes a witness to him as the Messiah. But perhaps the most fascinating detail of the story, of this encounter, comes in verse 4, just before what we read. The narrator tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. So Jesus and his disciples, they had just been down in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover, and they had to make their way back to Galilee. Now it is true that Samaria lies directly between Jerusalem and where Jesus was going in, in Galilee. But it's not quite true that you have to travel through Samaria 
to get to Galilee from Jerusalem. In fact, most Jews from Galilee would not have traveled this way to get home. The, prefer the preferred route would have been along the Jordan River, which would allow them to bypass Samaria altogether. It's a slightly less direct route, but it's preferred because it's considered less dangerous because, of course, the bad blood that was between the Samaritans and Jews. So when the narrator tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it's not exactly true, at least not geographically. There's no reason they would have to travel to Samaria to get home. So why would John phrase it this way? Why say that he had to go through Samaria? Perhaps if we remember back again to the story of Nicodemus from last week and how that, there was that verse near the end, that beloved verse that we probably all know and, and could quote with no problem. You know, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christ's love for the world, those outside, those outside the promise of God, Christ's love for the world is the reason that he has to go through Samaria. Not because he physically needs to, but because there is a drive within him that pulls him through this place. It has nothing to do with practical travel plans or a quicker route home. He's not in a rush to get back for some reason. It has everything to do with his mission of spreading the good news of the gospel beyond the narrow confines or the social divisions of his time, that it must extend to those who would have otherwise been considered outside the promise, those for whom the Messiah definitely did not come. I think it raises the question for us of what if our faith functioned the same way, that, that for in some way our faith compelled us to seek out a different path, different paths, paths to those in the world whom we are told are completely different from us, those that we're told we have dividing lines between, that we can't, we don't go that way, we don't, we don't cross over that boundary, because those people over there, they're, they're different, they're not like us, in fact, they're kind of unlovable, you know, they're stuck in their sin, they're stuck in this, they're, they're whatever it might be. Because Christ's love, because Christ's love was for the world and not limited to one particular group of people, not one denomination, not one church body, he had to go through Samaria. And I wonder how many of us can truly share this feeling of compulsion that Christ felt. I think for many of us, we're more likely to, you know, do our best whenever we come in contact with with people that we might consider kind of outside. But, but we're not going to necessarily go out of our way to have those encounters, to have those conversations. But we'll love them when they come, when they come along. And do we really seek them out like Christ did? Does our faith compel us in this way? I think, not surprisingly, we have a lot to learn from Christ. Because there's this history of the conflict between Jews and Samaritans. It extends way, way back. It's a very long conflict. And during the time of Jesus, one of the main lingering issues has to do with the proper place of worship. The, and the Samaritan woman, she brings this up during their, their encounter. So basically, the Jews believed that the proper place of worship was the temple in Jerusalem, the place from which Jesus had just come. 
Whereas the Samaritans believed it was Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And this is not a minor issue. The stakes here are very, very high. We're talking about the proper, when we're talking about the proper place of worship, we are talking about the very dwelling place of God. So we're not talking about something as trivial as, well, which church should I go to? You know, I really love the music at this church, but, but the pastor's kind of long-winded, you know, never seems to, to shut up. But, but the pastor over here is great, but, you know, the music's kind of, uh, it, this is not church shopping, right? We're not talking about, you know, what, what place do we prefer one over the other? We're talking about when you are worshiping in this place, is God there or not? Because God can only be in one place. And Jesus tells her, though, that the hour is coming where the place of worship won't matter. It will no longer be a dividing issue. Because where we worship will not be in a place, but true worshipers of God will worship in spirit and in truth. Indeed, he says, the hour is already here because that's what matters. Not the place of worship, but the place of our hearts in worship whether or not we worship in spirit and truth. In other words, God is not confined to a temple in Jerusalem, nor on Mount Gerizim. God will not be boxed in. God's love is for the whole world. It's far more expansive than that. And God can be worshipped and experienced by anyone, anywhere, as long as they have eyes to see. And amazingly, this woman, this Samaritan woman, this unnamed Samaritan woman, gets it. She truly gets it. She hurries back to her town and tells everyone that she has met the Messiah. She said, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. And many believe simply based on her testimony. And others want to come see for themselves. They, they invite Jesus to stay with them for a while. So he stays for two more days. And then even more come to believe because of Jesus' word while he's with them. But it all begins with this one woman who came to the, to the well to get water, like she had probably done countless times before that. Ironically, of course, she came to the well to get water and ends up leaving her water jar behind. She doesn't even bring it with her. She came... She came with one thirst, a thirst for water, a thirst for nourishment. But she left with a new thirst, the thirst to do the will of her heavenly Father. She came to the well that day expecting to find water, like you would from a well. But she did not expect to find the very source of the living water that gives eternal life. But when she finds that wellspring of living water, she says, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Her thirst for water is redirected into a new thirst for something eternal, not something that will pass away, something lasting, something that unifies instead of divides. And it strikes me during this time that this is essentially, I think, what Lent is all about for us, isn't it? You know, for many of us, it's it's this season of self-denial that in some kind of small way mirrors Christ's denial of himself that that leads him to the cross. But we have to ask the question, why why do we practice 
Um, why do we go through these practices of self-denial? Why do we give up chocolate or sugar or whatever it may be? Because perhaps by denying our thirst for certain things, we can foster a deeper thirst for Christ. Or perhaps by denying our hunger for certain foods, our hunger for God's word will be deepened. Jesus told his disciples that his food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. So even though it can sound a little bit trivial to some people to give up something like soda or chocolate for Lent, there can be real value in it. it, it there can be value because it can help us, like the Samaritan woman, to cultivate a new thirst, a thirst for something eternal, a thirst for something that, that won't go away, that won't pass away. So however we observe this Lent season, let us be encouraged to seek that new thirst, a thirst not for the things of this world that do not satisfy, but for the living and sustaining water of Christ. Let us hunger for God's word, which redefines our world. It's easy to look around at the, at the world around us and only see difference, only see division, only see the places that separate us rather than bring us together. I mean, all we have to do is turn on the TV, watch MSNBC or Fox News, and, and we will quickly be told who our enemies are. But instead, as we begin to cultivate this new thirst, perhaps instead we can begin to see and to love the world a bit more like Christ did, so that perhaps our paths will lead us into places that we wouldn't otherwise normally go, because that's what our faith requires of us, and that's how our faith moves us. Amen.